Hello, and welcome to the Garden Club, where we explore the world and characters of Bloom and Blight a few questions at a time. My name is Anna, though you may know me better as your always exhausted Oracle Larkspur. Today, we're going to do things a little differently. Despite my best efforts, we've realized that I am, in fact, not able to interview myself. So instead, I have my absolutely amazing co-producer, Kit, here with me to do a very special joint episode. How are you today, Kit? I'm doing all right. Awesome. How are you? I guess this is part of my job, too, now. <laughs> Starting it early. Yes. Questions will be bouncing back to me. Um, I'm doing okay. <laughs> I am doing quite well. Anytime I get to sit down and chat with you is a wonderful time. Far too kind. Um, so this episode is probably going to be a little longer than the other ones, so we should dive straight in. You came to Bloom and Blight with, I guess we could say, a more shallow base of knowledge about the magical girl genre. I believe your first magical girl show was Madoka Magica, uh, which is a choice. <laughs> that That is true. And it was, I want to say, like a week before we started recording that I watched that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you came into it with almost no knowledge. Yep. So I am curious about where your inspiration from Daft does come from. Uh, yeah, no, so definitely not the typical magical girl genre, which is a little shocking. But yeah, I, I didn't grow up on magical girls. I didn't grow up with like your, your Sailor Moons and your Madokas and etc. Um, so I'm sort of pulling all of my inspirations from like left of that. So arguably things that are still kind of magical girl, um, like your Winx, your Witch, your Code Lyoko. I will take this uh, to... I will die on this hill. Code Lyoko is a magical girl anime. But so definitely pulling a lot more inspiration from like the mid 2000s cartoon, almost superhero shows, kind of. So I pulled a lot of, I don't know, I was a, I was a big Teen Titans kid. It's a very good show. It's such a good show. The original one, so, so choice. Bring it back, cowards. Um, <laughs> so I feel like Daft feels a lot more like a superhero than a magical girl for that reason. Um, and that was kind of on purpose. Um, I mean, I obviously can't help that I came in with a very, you know, left of magical girl sort of baseline. Um, but I kind of wanted to purposefully play into that um, because, you know, being the enigma, like I wanted to play on sort of this different relationship that somebody like that would have to their magical girl team and to like their powers in general, right? Because she is a very, it is a very split playbook. And so in in a way I kind of wanted to play on her being, you know, sl sort of removed from the group, even just in like the vibes. Um, so definitely pulling a lot more uh, like Western cartoons, a lot more superhero-y type things. And also, a little bit from like my own sort of mundane experiences. Um, I knew going into playing this, uh, I mean, the playbook jumped out to me right away. We love a mystery. We love an enigma. But I knew if I was going to do something like that, I wanted to play somebody who was an athlete, somebody whose heroic skills were very mundane. And I think I'm, I'm very happy with how that sort of ended up because um, there's already this really massive rift between uh, who Hadley ended up being and who Daffodil ended up being. Um, and I think drawing sort of that very straight line between those two personalities by making their, you know, quote unquote, powers very mundane feeling ended up being a, a really interesting dynamic that I'm proud of and kind of makes that character feel a little bit unique in their own way. Yeah, 
Dav being built as kind of more of a superhero than a magical girl, I think really stands out. How does that affect their place in the team? How they relate to everyone else who kind of do fit more along those classic magical girl tropes? Um, I mean, I think even without wanting to, it kind of set her up as this underdog. Like, as this, she she already fills this very sidekicky role um, for, you know, Lily and then for the rest of the team. Uh, too. And I think like coming from that slightly different background, like not quite fitting in to the rest of the team, kind of set her up to be, to, to take a little bit of a, how do you say, like take, take a back seat almost because she doesn't, the vibes are a little bit off. She doesn't quite feel like a magical girl in the same way that everybody else does. And I think it kind of puts a little bit of, of distance between her and the rest of the team. Um, despite, you know, how friendly she is with the rest of the team. And, you know, they are all very close friends. Um, but there's like a, there's a very different kind of distance that that puts on her. And it's been really interesting to play out. I am curious how, um, I don't know, how you, how you sort of feel playing off of a very sidekicky sort of character, because she did sort of start as, you know, sidekick to Lily, but especially as, you know, Sybil and Hadley started you know, their relationship. And then after Lily, after Lily dies, there's sort of Sybil's filling in that role. So I, I'm curious how you feel, you know, inheriting a sidekick, I guess. That is interesting. I I don't know that Sybil sees Hadley or Lark sees Daff as a sidekick because they do know them so much better. Daff does set up a lot of Lark's moves. I think we see that pretty early on in the series um, with Daff kind of flinging Lark into the action. But I don't, yeah, I don't think Lark sees Daff as a sidekick. I feel like when they met, it did feel at least, I mean, at least to Hadley, to Daff, I do feel like it felt very like underdoggy, very sidekick, very, this is this established magical girl team. And then here I am, some asshole on the gymnastics team thinking I can be one of them. But I think that very quickly changed between the two of them, them specifically. And I think I think you're right that like she, Sybil did sort of, you know, inherit this role on the team as this de facto leader of sorts. But the dynamic between her and Daff and between Lily and Daff is definitely very different. Significantly less sidekicky, I think. Yeah. And in all fairness, uh, Lark did meet Daff while saving her ass. Um, <laughs> while doing it, That's true. While she was doing That's something true. very reckless before She was fine. Team. It was fine. Um, <laughs> I think it was a shattered leg. <laughs> I think it was, it was something like that. I don't know, several cracked ribs later, you know? It, it's interesting. They did kind of meet in a way where Lark was helping Daff. And then that very quickly turned on its head for, you know, Daff's sort of role in this team. And then, of course, there's the fact that they're dating. But we do see Lark helping Daff as well. Um, it was at episode three, um, kind of removing Daff from reality for a moment, dropping her into a dream to protect her. Oh, truly, move of all time. <laughs> I do think we get to see really early on that those two, like, even like powers wise, like in a fight, they do play off each other very well, um, which I'm very glad that we got to sort of establish 
you know, with everybody, but specifically with these two, like sort of established their history via the way that they fight together. That and the flashbacks that we've seen, both good and bad. So cute. So I know where a lot of a lot of my inspirations don't come from the typical like magical girl uh, situation, but I think it's it's pretty clear from the beginning where a lot of Lark's sort of magical girl inspirations come from. Uh, I mean, would you care to elaborate on some of those, or maybe some of the non magical girl uh, inspirations that maybe aren't as obvious? Yeah, when I make characters, I always embed them pretty deeply in both mechanics and world lore. Um, And Lark is not an exception to that. Um, Her playbook is the Time Traveler playbook, just reskinned a little bit as a dream oracle type thing. And the Time Traveler playbook uh, is based very specifically on Homura from Madoka Magica. Um, A lot of the ways that it works, a lot of the moves that are in it are based very specifically on that character and her arc. Um, So a lot of inspiration does come from Homura, um, but also the idea of the witch's labyrinths uh, within Madoka Magica were a big inspiration for me as well. That kind of surreal other reality that you could step into to fight, that you could step into to draw on Mm -hmm. uh, for magic. And I wanted to play with kind of bringing that into Lark's magic in the form of like dreams and daydreams. I went with dreams because I I love time travel. It's my favorite kind of magic, but I do it a lot. Um, <laughs> and I do have another magical girl character that I played on Girls Run These Worlds in our Valor game, uh, which her magic set is time manipulation. So I want to do something a little bit different. And the idea of being able to go into people's dreams is something I think that has always interested me. Um, It's a trope that we see in a lot of different types of media spanning across all genres, essentially, of characters needing to go into another character's mind to sort something out. I mean, we don't see it just in shows with magic. We see it in shows with science. Mm -hmm. And going into someone's mind, these stories are able to break their standard styles of narrative or their artistic styles or how they present things. The rules of the world are able to be bent and broken in really interesting ways. And when I was pitching the idea of Lark's magic set to Taylor, I told her I wanted to get really weird with it. And you do. Yeah, we've seen that a little bit so far in the episodes that are out. And there are some Mm -hmm. episodes coming up where we really get to see Lark unleash uh, with what she can do with dreams and daydreams. And I'm very excited for people to see that. I cannot wait to be able to talk about some of the absolutely bonkers stuff that Lark does. I think that the idea to make it more reality bending than time bending was definitely a choice that I don't think I would have thought of. But it fits so well with like... I don't, I don't know that the show would be even remotely the same if that wasn't a sort of like level that we were playing with as well. Because there's always on the back burner, like they, they use it for travel, the team does. And like half of the, half of the uh, like fights that we get into, like we would not have been able to do most of the stuff that we do if we weren't also playing in this like fourth dimension of also, everybody's daydreaming, and we can just do that sometimes. It it really does change everything, um, and it's it's been really fun to see how the team has kind of revolved around that, how we've all kind of built around each other's power sets and how we interact with the world. 
And yeah, with, without Lark being able to travel through dreams or manipulate reality, it would be a very different story. And I will give credit that the idea from basing her powers on kind of dream magic came from in the Girl by Moonlight rule book in the Time Travelers section. There is, I think, a single line that says that you can adapt the book to fit your setting. You know, instead of having lived through the timelines, you might have premonitions about the future or something. And I kind of took that and ran with it about, okay, what if they're dreams? What if she can enter dreams and do things in dreams and manipulate them and pull them into the real world? Um, and it's just kind of went from there. And things get weird and I really enjoy it. Things get so, so weird. And I do, I do love that about like the core sort of rule set is like there are defined moves, right, that every playbook can do. But on the whole, like just your regular like I do a hit, like is entirely left up to the players. Like nobody said Daff had to use a whip. Nobody said that Lark had to like dive into dreams. Nobody said that Belladonna gets a cool baseball bat made of light. Like, those are all decisions that are fully left up to the players. There's just, like, these very general moves that we can use to sort of build out from those. And I think that's very sort of freeing um, for the, the source material to be built like that. So we mentioned, I mean, clearly the show would be very different if the powers that we sort of settled on were any different. What do you think it would look like if these if these characters were not the playbooks that we chose? If they were not the sort of vibes that we ended up going with? Like, did you have a backup in mind? Is there something that Lark would have been? When I was originally looking at the playbooks, the other playbook I was drawn to was the Guardian. Because Lark, along with a lot of my other characters that I play, are kind of based around different approaches to the idea of legacy and responsibility and the kind of burden that comes with power. And we see that a lot with Lark struggling with her visions and with having to interpret them and act on them and having to hold secrets and all of that. Um, and I think I would have approached that similar, similar themes to what Lark is experiencing, but in the Guardian playbook with that sort of self-sacrifice. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's probably for the best that none of us went Guardian because I think mm -hmm. everybody was toying with that idea at one yeah. point or another. I know from the get-go, I had two playbooks in mind, and it was Enigma and Guardian, 100%. Um, and not just because I was pulling from, having recently watched Madoka Magica, pulling from uh, Mommy, the other yellow one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we all would have gone very different ways with it, but I do think it's fitting that none of the actual team that we see so far have really dove into that playbook yet, um, because we all would have. <laughs> just a very good playbook yeah and it's very fitting that that was lily's role yeah definitely uh before before dying before the everything happened <laughs> before setting off this entire chain of events listen choices were made uh decisions decisions were come to uh <laughs> speaking of choices were made listen we've seen <laughs> recently throughout the season up to this point we've seen lark and daff not exactly get along since <laughs> lily's death um yeah you can you say that you could say that they're not handling it well or in a healthy manner. 
You could. And it has strained their relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, But recently in episode uh, six and seven, we start to see them trying to reconnect. Yeah, I think that's been, I mean, a long time coming. And they've been, you know, struggling through it uh, and going very, very different ways in their grieving. Um, I think it's been interesting to see, but I... (laughs) Trying to have all of these conversations between Daff and Lark and trying to see them sort of try to salvage this relationship that has been, you know, in some ways irreparably changed by what happened. There have been moments when we have been recording this and I know we've talked about it, like we've talked about plot, right, behind the scenes of like, what is this art going to look like for these two characters, for these, you know, girlfriends? Are like, what is that going to look like? There have been moments when we were recording where I'm like, are we about to break up right now? Yeah. <laughs> and I that goes a long ways, I think, in how well you play Daff and her emotions and how well you carry those into those arguments and those fight scenes. And I adore you so much. And I feel so bad every time uh, that we have fights like that. Oh, I mean, I could say the same. I, I don't think that I could be as, like, stoic and like standing my ground as Lark is every time they have these arguments. It is truly impressive. And yeah, no, I'm I'm so sorry every time we have to yell at each other. Um, <laughs> but I I think that's, you know, they're very important points in the relationship between these two because the whole point of this show, right, is that this is the ugly side of Magical Girls. This is everything has gone wrong and we have to still, you know, pick it up in the morning and put on our sequence and go save the day. God damn it. And I, I think that definitely has a very important place. The, these fights have a very important place in that narrative, which, you know, I, I'm also just very happy that we get to see like a different sort of relationship. Like we can see how each of the members of the team are sort of disagreeing with each other and and butting heads after everything happened but having like a genuine romantic relationship between some of them and seeing how that is also impacted just adds another layer and it's it's a lot to juggle uh but i i think it it's messy and that's the point yeah coming into this i really wanted this show to be on some level, an examination of grief mm-hmm. and how it affects you and those around you and those relationships that you have. And I think the relationship between Daff and Lark has really gone a long ways in showing one of those facets of how even something really good mm-hmm. can be absolutely messed up by not dealing with grief in a healthy manner. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Speaking of not dealing with our grief, that vision, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Lark's been, I mean, we talk about how many secrets Daph's been keeping. Lark's been keeping a lot under wraps. How is it going into, you know, these episodes knowing what Larkspur knows? Oh, I, as a player, I love it. (laughs) I love being able to know these extra things because it's just even more burden I get to put on Lark, (laughs) which makes a great story. It sounds awful, but it makes a great story. We love to hurt our characters. Yes, absolutely. Um, And coming into this, the Time Traveler playbook has this sort of overarching threat like we see in Madoka Magica. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know something's coming and the outcome isn't pretty and we're trying to avoid it. We're doing everything we can and we're failing and failing and failing. So knowing this stuff is going to happen gives me a lot of room to set up that drama, to set up that burden 
the exhaustion that Lark is always carrying, both physically and emotionally. Um, and that really affects how she approaches everything, especially as she's kind of sliding into the leadership role in the team. She's not intending to, but it's kind of the spot that she's ending up in. And that's just adding to everything. It's mixing everything in. This doubt of, if I lead them, I have to be perfect. I have to know my visions because I have to avoid them. And if anything goes wrong, it's my fault because I could have seen it. I could have prevented it. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of perfection that she can't escape. It's, it's a dangerous a, a dangerous theme to be toying with, especially with where everyone is after what happened with Lily. How is Daph handling that vision? I mean, it's a pretty heavy vision to be shown. You know, your own dead body and your <laughs> girlfriend's dead body. Um, how? Where is Daph at after all of that? Oh, man, where is Daph at? Like, glued to Lark's hip, um, I think, clearly. Um, I think that was honestly the wake-up call that she needed. Because she's been trying, especially since, you know, the first couple episodes, uh, since we, you know, bring Zeke back and sort of come together again as a, a group. She's known that she's been doing the wrong thing. And she knows she's been kind of being a shitty person uh, and a, a terrible girlfriend. But I think seeing being let into sort of what Lark has been carrying this whole time, because Lark has had these visions since well before she met Hadley. But that hasn't always been something that has been shared with her, um, at least not to this extent. Like this is, a, this is a vision that Lark has had for a hot minute that Daph has never seen before. So I think not only is it like, yes, it's a very awful scene to witness, but it's the fact that she's finally being let into this to like be able to see and in a way help carry this burden that that Sybil's had since before they knew each other. I think that's kind of the wake up call that like, yeah, Lark is trying. And if Lark can share this, then what the hell am I doing? Yeah, so it, it was, there was a lot of grief there, but I think it was also a lot of guilt because I think that's the moment that we kind of see her realize uh, in the episodes that she is in the wrong and that she knows it. And not only does she know it, but she knows that she needs to actually actively try to fix it. And I'm excited to see how she goes about trying to fix that because she has been bad about it so far. We've, I mean, we've seen them fight over and over, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was, it was a rough, it was a rough scene. I mean, and it was a rough scene to record, but it's what needed to happen. Yeah, it, it was rough to record. I, I felt very bad describing <laughs> the scene and all of that. But then we've seen now, you know, the movie night that the two go on. Mm -hmm. Hadley really making an effort to make a difference. A bucket full of Sour Patch Kids, which <laughs> is a lot of Sour Patch Kids. If that's not romance, I don't know what is, truly. <laughs> I don't even like Sour Patch Kids, but like, that's love. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so Bloom and Blight is... It is a magical girl show, but it is very much a a different brand of magical girl show. Like you said, it is this exploration of grief and of the messy bits of of being a hero. What made you want to spearhead a show like this? And, and what did sort of pulling all of that together look like initially? That is a great question. This show came together, and I'll talk about it a little more in a moment, but this show came together very quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those themes are 
themes that I've always been very interested in, the darker themes. Um, Madoka Magica is a big influence for me as well. Looking at, yes, there is hope and there is friendship and love, and those are the things that get you through, but there is some shit you have to go through to save the world. And I'm always very interested in that and the effect that it has on you because Mm -hmm. the fight where Lily dies, the team wins. Bloom wins that fight, right? Yeah. But it's still a huge loss for the team, despite that. They saved the town, they saved the world in that moment, but they still lost. And that's a theme that I'm very interested in exploring and how that affects you and how it affects the people around you when you're dealing with that. So I've been wanting to do Magical Girl TTRPG games for a while. It's a very important genre to me. Growing up as a closeted trans girl, it was a very important way for me to experience a lot of that quote unquote feminine culture in a way that I still could and not be judged for it. So it's a genre I've been wanting to get into more in actual plays. And we did a show on Girls Around These Worlds um, using the Valor system, which is an amazing system uh, created by a trans woman. um, And it's a queer run company. Um, And that was a great show, but it was very short. And I wanted something that I wanted something that I could dive into a little more, a bit longer term. And then it was right around the time when the Girl by Moonlight Kickstarter launched. And I realized that they were offering PDFs of the drafts right away when you backed, which was very exciting. It allowed everyone to jump into the system right away. And I tweeted out kind of a joke tweet about how I really wanted to run a Girl by Moonlight game. And, you know, the only obstacle is sleep, but who actually needs sleep? And it was kind of a joke. And then you responded (laughs) to the tweet. Guilty. And then I immediately DM'd you asking if you were serious, and things just evolved quickly from there. So quickly. We had a cast within a week. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say we were recording in a couple of weeks, and I think the I think we started talking middle of May about this, and our first episode, legally speaking, launched on let me let me check let me check the notes. July twentieth. July twentieth. So yeah, we were recording within a month, uploaded within two. Yeah. Which is. I I have been told is bonkers for a podcast. (laughs) It is. It is indeed. Uh, We, and we got the art together with that. Aki was amazing as the artist. Shout out to Aki. Incredible character art. Um, And really, despite everything, yeah, got the art done so quickly. We got the trailer done. We got everything moving, promos moving. Taylor got plot ready. Yeah. The cast was amazing working on such a tight timeline. And we've been running with it ever since. And the support we've seen from everyone has been absolutely amazing. Truly, truly unexpected. Uh, absolutely bonkers response. Uh, it still baffles me that people enjoy the show as much as they do. But I mean, we the team love the show so much and put so much into it. And I, I think it I think it shows. I think I think we've done some good work here. We've done quick work. That's for damn sure. Uh, but we've always, we've focused really on the production quality. Uh, we yeah. do a lot of editing. We're very careful in our editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go in and do a lot of like really fine tuning on things, on levels. You build some beautiful soundscapes. We do put a lot of effort into the soundscapes, which we've gotten a lot of compliments on. People do really seem to enjoy it. Um, and it's it's a lot of work. Uh, this, as a podcast, is probably the most work of any of the projects I work on. One day I'll release the editing checklist. Um, 
Oh, it's so long. It's extensive, but there's a lot that goes into it, um, which I'm very quickly learning as a first-time producer. And you've been doing amazing. Uh, you picked it up and started running with it right away. Yeah, I, I am proud of I'm proud of what we've been able to do, um, and incredibly grateful that uh, you've sort of let me run with all of my goofy ideas. Like, hey, we're gonna transcribe every single episode. Uh, like, we're gonna do that and not wait for somebody else to. It's important. It is. I think, you know, focusing on telling a good story is one thing, but focusing on having, you know, a an excellent and diverse cast, focusing on having an accessible show. I think, if anything, we've proven that you don't have to give up one for the other because we've done a lot to make this show run the way that it does. And I'm proud, I'm proud of it. You proud of it? I'm proud of it. I am quite proud of it. What's your favorite part of production? Oh man. Um listening back to the like raw audios and doing like those initial edits because there there's a lot of goofy shit that ends up on the cutting room floor. I have maybe a larger bloopers folder than I should and one day we'll release that maybe. I don't know. Patreon exclusive, I don't know. But <laughs> like just getting to like record with this whole team who is just absolutely stellar from day one has been absolutely stellar. And I get a little bit sad every time we have to cut some sort of goof, but getting to like go back and listen to the game that we're playing. Cause yeah, we're making a show, but we're also playing a game with our friends. And it still feels like that, at least to me, which I think is very important. And one of the cooler things about specifically this cast that we've put together. Do you have a do you have a, a favorite part of production? I think it's a tie between the space that we've created as a cast because it is wonderful mm -hmm. when we're not playing. Everyone gets along so well. Uh, the chemistry and camaraderie that's there in our green rooms is just amazing. Um, it's a great space to be in. It's a tie between that and I think getting the soundscape in and doing that final review of the episode and hearing it all come together in what we've come to known as a Bloom and Blight episode, right? Taking it from that raw footage and turning it into the show that it is and getting to hear that, I think is probably my favorite part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first time that I listened to like the like final mix down, like the first final mix down, uh, of the first episode, like, I, I did not know how to process that, because, like, that's a whole show. It's, it's really impressive, uh, taking, you know, a, a three-hour raw recording session with all of the, you know, the, the pauses and the stutters and the whatnot, uh, the, the crosstalk and stuff, and turning it into something that is actually a show is just so magical. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun, uh, doing the soundscape as well, getting, finding the right songs, cutting those up, looping them, timing the musical cues that we do time, putting together sound effects. We don't we do not do any of our own Foley work, but we do build our sound effects sometimes from existing stuff. Like the, uh, I, one of the, the sound effects I'm most proud of was the sound effect of Larkspur and Zeke falling into the gravel truck during the premiere. Oh my God. Unsurprisingly, there's not, at least that we had access to, there's not a ready-made two bodies falling into the back of a dump truck filled with gravel. <laughs> uh, so that's a sound effect we had to build using a bunch of other sound effects. Yeah, I think like diving back into that uh, 
that audio file, like after you had put that together and just seeing how many different things you had to like layer and loop and adjust to like make that sound. That was truly like, I had to like sit back a moment. Like that's art, honestly. And it's art that like the whole point of is that people, that it is so natural that people don't notice it. And I think that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of work for like maybe a half a second of sound as they slam into the back of that truck. But it's it's for the immersion. <laughs> it's for the immer It makes the whole thing feel a little bit more real. And if you do it right, you're it, it puts you so into the space that you don't realize that it's happening, which is so cool. We're playing mind games. We're we're being Lark. We're getting into people's heads. We are pushing the uh, the kind of limits of what these episodes usually are time-wise. Uh, That's true. But we usually wrap up with a couple very uh, lighthearted questions, uh, kind of rapid fire. So, favorite magical girl? I know you don't oh, have a what? lot of... <laughs> yeah, usually we do top three. I know you probably don't have a base for that. I don't know if I know three magical girls, Anna. Um, I mean, you mentioned Code Lyoko earlier. You mentioned a couple that you could make arguments for. <laughs> Everyone has come into this part of the segment with very strong opinions, so go for it. I Okay, yeah, I mean, I have very strong opinions, and that is that the magical girl genre is much wider than people give it credit for. Um, Madoka is obviously, like, at the top of the list, I think. Like, having characters like uh, like Homura, having characters like... Who's the blue one? What's her name? Sayaka? Yes, so I got, like having those characters in such like a gritty magical girl setting, like I, I feel a little bit spoiled that that was my first magical girl show because I feel like it's gonna be my favorite and stay my favorite. But yes, Code Lyoko is a magical girl anime, thank you. They have, it has the transformations, they gain powers that are specific to the transformations. They are kids in a boarding school, but because it's French, nobody, nobody counts it. But yes, so Aelita from Code Lyoko, magical girl of all time, thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm having the, like, what is a sandwich argument because like, listen, Transformers, magical girls. Uh, Power Rangers, magical girls, thank you. The, the genre is wider than you expect it to be. And I think that needs to be acknowledged, which is kind of a non-answer, but. We need to get you and Logan together on one of these to have a discussion about <laughs> what is a magical girl. <laughs> truly, truly. That'll be, that's that's bonus content, you know, get in the comments. <laughs> All right, I know you've got, you know, more to pull from. Uh, so top, I'm gonna make you do top three, magical girls. I know you can do it. Top three. Um, starting off, I think, uh, with Cardcaptor Sakura. That was such an important show for me growing up and it was a show as a closeted trans girl that I could be into without you know being made fun of it was part of the WB block um I think it came on like right before Pokemon I think right after Static Shock so it was very easy to watch it with the excuse of oh I'm just watching these other shows and it happens to be on in between and so many uh so much queerness for a 90s anime as well it is if you haven't seen it it is very much of its time uh of the 90s but it is so queer. Uh, don't watch the American <laughs> version, watch the Japanese version. It is so queer. Um, Homura from Madoka Magica, of course, because I love time magic and I love the setup of her story and spoilers, you know, that we learn in episode nine, she's the main character and the way that that was handled and all of that. I just, I love her story of loss and repeated loss and trying so hard to save someone that you lose track of why you're doing it and it just becomes a habit it just becomes a drive without a foundation essentially and i love that as a character trope 
I think number three, Mermista from She-Ra. Thank you. Yes, She-Ra, magical girl anime. <laughs> I wish I could be Mermista. She is amazing. Uh, everything I want to be personality-wise. <laughs> Mermista's peak character design, truly. So final question that I like okay. to ask everyone without giving spoilers. Oh, no. Uh, we have released up through episode up through episode nine, so we are partially through the Campbell Jade mission. What can listeners expect from Daph going forward? Oh, man. Sick flips and funny quips, my guys. Um. <laughs> oh, that needs to go on the merch list. <laughs> that's it. That's the Daph shirt, right? Um, that's like booty shorts, like yellow booty shorts that say sick flips and cool quips or whatever. Amazing. But, yeah, I'm I'm getting in Canva right now. Don't worry about it. Um. Get in the comments if you want those. <laughs> Yeah, uh, throw us a tweet if you want the redacted uh, Daffodil Booty Shorts. Um, but no, I think from Daff going forward, um, I think we're going to start seeing, I think we're going to start seeing her fall a little bit back into, to an extent, what her place on the team was before everything that happened with Lily. Um, sort of falling back into that support role that she, you know, does so well. Um, and we've seen a little bit of that in the beginning, but I, I think we're going to see more of that going forward and hopefully, uh, seeing some of that bleed back into her relationship with Lark because, you know, after, as you said, after seeing that vision that Lark's been carrying and, you know, them trying to work through everything that's been going on between them and, you know, more importantly, everything that hasn't been going on between them, I, I think, I think listeners can expect an effort to be made, maybe more so than we have seen yet. And of course, I wouldn't be doing my job as a co-host if I didn't turn the question back on you. What What do you think we can expect from Lark in the coming episodes? No spoilers. Uh, expect from Lark more exhaustion, more <laughs> angst, uh, more burden. Um, expect her to really struggle with the leadership position that she has found herself in and that overhanging threat of the need to be perfect otherwise somebody else will die and lily dying messed up the team so much that it won't survive somebody else dying and with her falling into this leadership position she feels like it would be on her it would be her fault her responsibility so struggling with that and struggling with the doubt that we saw in the cafe scene uh, with her, with Sybil talking mm. with Lonnie about whether or not Daph is actually interested in the relationship. Because there hasn't been a good communication of importance or Sybil's place in Hadley's priorities. So there's a doubt there that she's struggling with. Um, so hopefully we'll see some more positive stuff come out of their relationship. But as you mentioned earlier, every time we have a fight between the two of them, it's always always in my mind like are they about to break up every time because sometimes we just don't know and their fights can get pretty intense so look forward to big feelings big feelings big feelings and big struggles (laughs) big feelings is a good tagline for this show i think absolutely um and expect some really cool dream stuff yeah uh from lark she gets to do some really cool stuff uh in some upcoming episodes and um, I'm so excited to see that. Hopefully doesn't die. <laughs> Fingers crossed, you know. Uh, that is unfortunately all of the time that we have, though. We've, I think, probably stretched a bit further than we should have, but we're the producers. There's two people. We have to have an extra bulky episode. That's true. 
Uh, but thank you so much uh, for sitting and chatting with me and helping interview me since my skills are apparently not good enough to interview myself. One day, one day we'll get there. <laughs> it is always a delight to sit and chat with you. As it is to sit and chat with you. Thank you so much for listening to Bloom and Blight. Our cast includes Taylor as the director, Candice as Belladonna, Logan as Wolfsbane, Kit as Daffodil, and Anna as Larkspur. Cast details can be found in the show description. All production is handled by Anna and Kit. All sounds and music, courtesy Epidemic Sounds. Girl by Moonlight is a Forged in the Dark system from Evil Hat Productions. To stay up to date with all things Bloom and Blight, be sure to give us a follow on social media at Bloom and Blight. Bloom and Blight is a Dareful Archives production. See you next time.